0: Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for gathering us here this morning to hear your word. We thank you that you are a gracious God. And we pray, Father, that as we finish up this series in Ecclesiastes, that you will bless my words, that you will take those words and by the power of your spirit implant them in our hearts that we might know and understand your purposes in the world and that we might live to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Okay. Ring, a ring, a rosy, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. I remember as a child I used to sing that song quite often. And as a child I had absolutely no meaning of or understanding of its meaning or even of its origin. And I have that, this distinct memory that as I would sing that song, I would hold hands with my friends and we would gaily spin round and around and around, so much so that we would get dizzy and we'd fall over and we'd be in absolute laughter. We would think, this is just the funniest thing in the world. What a stupid little song. How silly, how fun. Round and round you go and you all fall over. Ha, 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 ha,
1: ha. It was only later,
0: when I got older that I did come to understand the meaning of that song and its importance. For those who don't know, the song is actually about something that is actually quite horrifying. The song is about the Black Death. And the Black Death hit Europe in successive waves. It wasn't just one period. It probably started as early as the 5th century. And the disease would seize their bodies. And the song really talks about the various stages of the symptoms you would have when you had the disease. Ring-a-ring-a-rosy. We're talking about splotches on the, on the skin. A tissue, a tissue. Sneeze, sneeze. And then you died. Lovely little song for children to sing, don't you? All those teachers in the room, happily go and teach it to your children this week. It's fairly heavy stuff for a children's song, isn't it? Now, why would I bring it up? As I read Ecclesiastes today, and as I've read the book many times over the last uh, six months, I get a similar feeling. That as you listen to the teacher, what does he say? He keeps on saying, life, it goes round and round. And you can search for meaning all you want. And you could be blessed, or you could be lucky, you can enjoy some of it, yet in the end, we all fall down. Dead. No wonder the teacher begins at the start of the book. Absolutely futile. Everything is absolutely futile. Now I've listened to some of the talks and certainly looked at the topics. That the various people doing this series have, do- have said, and it is strange to come here and finish off a series in Ecclesiastes. must be strange for you to hear various preachers take on the book and there is no doubt that Ecclesiastes is a hard book to get your head around and that and that is just reading the book as it is. Then you start to read some of the commentaries, and with all their various takes that I 've come to Uh, And as I've read all these various takes, I've come to the conclusion that none of them listen to the book of Ecclesiastes because as you read and as you see in the chapter before us, beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. As I go through life, this seems to be a verse that many a commentator has chosen to ignore, but yet many a student has taken to heart. Yet here we are. So as we come to the close of a series of a book that shows the absolute futility of life as a result of the finality of death, you might be sitting there and asking, what is the point of it all? Why read a book that just talks about death and its futility? But like Jim said at the start of the series, I think the book of Ecclesiastes says something very important to us as Christians. And it is something that Christians really need to hear and listen and take very much on board in their lives. And I hope to draw out the teacher's point as we look at the final part of this book and we bring this series to a close. Now, as some context, as you're aware, chapter 12 comes after chapter 11. I did go to school. Uh, But importantly for us, this section in chapter 12 has very much in mind uh, chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. I'm just going to read that. Rejoice, young man, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting the point of the teacher at this point he is just saying make the most of every opportunity in life especially the opportunities presented to you in your youth you don't know the future and it is better to why and wiser to act while you still have youth and vigor with you but remember these things don't last and god will bring them into judgment and so we move into chapter 12. So remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you say I have no delight in them. It is clear the teacher sees death approaching. And he tells his his listeners interestingly and this is the only time the teacher says this throughout the book where he refers to God as his creator. And he says, remember your creator before time runs out, before your youth and your vigour and your strength run away. Why does he do this? We need to remember the teacher doesn't forget God in his search for meaning under the sun. In fact, the book refers to God 39 times. But why does he refer to God as creator now? And I think the answer comes as we think through the argument of the book as a whole. This is a summary section of Ecclesiastes and the teacher has explored all parts of life and he has looked for meaning in all places under the sun. And he comes to his final verse in verse 8, absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. And you look at verse 8 and you could think, well, the teacher, he's just given up. But this ignores what he has just said in verse 1. Look to your creator. See, the teacher has explored life. He's explored life under the sun. He's looked at all these areas of life. And upon reflecting upon his life and all the activity, he has found that it has been a futile search that when he has searched out and completed these things, he has found that it is meaningless. He was grasping after the wind. There was no meaning there. But the teacher has a massive paradox or tension that comes out throughout the book, and this is what I think the book is reflecting on. All the way, the teacher has been exploring all these ideas, looking at all these areas of life, and whilst he has found that they are all futile, They are all meaningless and they are made meaningless by death. Yet while this is the case, he has realised there is something good and proper to life under the sun, that there is wisdom to be found, that there is wisdom in doing your work well, that there is beauty, that there is contentment to be found in relationships, in family, That there is a good and proper way of living in the world. And this creates the paradox for the teacher. For on the one hand, he knows it's all futile, yet on the other, he keeps finding out that there are better things in life, there are better things to do. And this is the paradox. For if there is a better, well, then there must be a scale, there must be a measure on which I can work out what is the better. I just can't find it. It is fascinating talking to students on campus and even some of the faculty. Most of the campus is atheist, uh, whether by design or choice or just by sheer, that is the way the world is. And that's how they've been taught how to think. Now, there is this one particular guy that I've spoken to a few times, actually, over the years. He's come up from time to time when we run a store, we do some evangelism, and strangely enough, we keep having the same conversation. It's always a pleasant conversation. I think he's moved position since talking to me. I'm pretty sure when he first came, he stated he was an atheist, but he's now moved to a more agnostic position. I'm not really sure where he is. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, agnosticism and atheism are basically the same, except one declares there is no God and the other says, well, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to live as if there is no God. And if you know what, want to know what I say to each of them, come up and speak to me. They always walk away, I hope, reflecting on and thinking through their position better. Anyway, this guy, when he first came to me, he said, I don't need God to be good. And I said, oh, well, that, that's very nice. Well, what do you mean by good? Then he says, well, I believe we all know how to treat people well, that we all know what it means to be good to others. So we all should just do that. And I say, okay, that sounds great, but I don't think you're right. And he goes, well, what do you mean? Well, what about the rapist or the murderer? They obviously think what they are doing is good. They obviously that what they're doing is right. Why is your version of good better than theirs? And he sits there and he thinks about it. And he goes, I'm not really sure. And then I explain, see, you must understand the word good is a comparative word. You're comparing it against some other scale. Where did you get it? Where did it come from? Why is your scale of good better than the rapist or the murderer? Why is it better than the thief? Please explain this to me. I want to know. And we've had this conversation many times. And the last time, I think he got it. I think he went, oh, yeah, you're right. I've just come up with it. And he ran away. Uh, What this guy is going through, and he's... Just acceptance of there is a good is what most people actually see in the life. See, as most people look at the world, they experience a world that appears on surface to have reason, to have meaning, to have purpose. So much so that they will use words like good, bad, better or worse. Yet those words are meaningless unless you have some sort of scale, some sort of objective scale on which to measure them. And most people just use them and not realise that they've just pulled that meaning out of thin air. They've created it out of the wind. And that's what people think. Yet when they step back and they think about it and look at the world and try and find out exactly where that meaning is, they will find that it's not there. That it's futile. That all of life is a chasing after the wind. And this is the point of the book. It is not that there is no meaning to be found in the world. It's just that you won't find it in the world. I'll say that again. The book is not saying that there is no meaning in the world. It is just that you won't find it in the world. You can look for meaning in pleasure. It won't be there. You can look for meaning in work. It won't be there. You can look for meaning in family. a Very good thing. It won't be there. You can look for meaning in justice. It won't be there. You can look for governments to create meaning. They will fail. You can look to all these things, and yet you will find ring, a ring, a rosy, a pocket full of posies. Now you say, Well, I haven't spent much time so far looking at verses one to eight. But when you understand the purpose of the book, I really don't need to. The reason is simple. For the verses teach a simple message. You are going to die and then you will face the God's judgment of God. So stop wasting your time and the energy of your youth looking for meaning in the world. Instead, remember verse, remember him, as it says in verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken in the, into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. I really enjoy the language here. I don't think I've read a more dignified description of death anywhere, but it is death. None of us can escape it. None of us can avoid it. The silver cord will be snapped and we will all fall down dead so turn to god through his word now you can look at this and think this is rather nihilistic or fatalistic but i don't think that is the point of the teacher this has really been the point throughout the book and that is he wants us to look to god for meaning he wants us to see and wait on god for meaning Verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. When you read Ecclesiastes, you really do need to keep Proverbs in mind as the two books do go together. For in verse 13 we see the true wisdom of the teacher and this is his reference and it is a reference back to Proverbs 1, seven: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The teacher wants his pupils to understand that there is no meaning to be found in the world. All those who claim it have got it from the world or haven't got it from the world, they've just made it up themselves. all those who claim it, have just come up with the knowledge. They have come up with their own measure. They have come up with their own meaning. It is not a meaning that they can enforce on anybody else. It is just their meaning. And yet, they really have no knowledge of the true world as it really exists. Having worked on a university campus for 10 years, you come to realise that there is very little wisdom to be found on a university campus. Now, don't get me wrong, the universities do care for their students by and large, but they are just so dogmatically uh, convinced of their own worldview. They are so dogmatic and ideologically driven, they do not actually think or reflect upon their own worldview. They have actually lost the ability to critique their own worldview. For they have rejected their creator. In rejecting their creator, they have no standard, no objective means to actually say, I wonder if we're right. They are just going along and saying, this is what we think it all means, we've made it up. We're not going to tell you we've made it up, we're going to say it's science, but we've made it up and we want you to just listen to us because we th- uh, we're right. And that is the university campus. Instead, we need to realise that wisdom and knowledge are found in God. This is the point of the book. When we read it, we might find the book to be depressing. And as you read some of the commentaries, you will find that some people will find hope in it. Others will find pessimism. But as I've looked at the book, and I, I admit, I have found it a very hard book to understand and read. Because I kept asking the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? And I kept wanting to apply every aspect of the book directly to Jesus in some way. But as I read the book, I came to understand that my own preconceptions were getting in the way. And it was hard for me to settle my mind and listen to the teacher on his own terms. For... He does have something important he wants us to teach us and it does reflect back to Christ and his kingdom. But at the end of the day, I don't think the book is meant to lift you up. It is not meant to make you happy, but neither is it meant to tear you down and make you feel terrible. Instead, that would miss the point of the book. Instead, at the end of the day, Ecclesiastes looks at the world under the sun and he simply calls it as he sees it. He can't derive meaning or purpose or rhythm from the world as he looks at it under the sun. Why is God doing this thing rather than that? Why is God acting in this way rather than that? I don't know. Why is God uplifting this person and making their uh, goals successful while dragging another one down? Who can say? And so the teacher does the only thing he can do. He waits on God. And that is the point of Ecclesiastes. He looks at the world and he knows there's a point to it, but he can't discover what that point is by looking at the world. He knows there is a meaning to life, but he can't find that meaning in the world. And so he must be patient and humble and wait on God to reveal it. And that is the application. We need to be patient and humble and wait on God to reveal his purposes and his point in the world. Now, that can be hard. That can be hard, especially when we are going through pain and suffering. As a family, Trudy and I are going through a tough spot at the moment. All our kids are struggling with various issues and various problems. One of our sons is suffering from a mild form of depression and it is hard watching him suffer. It is not easy. But then I hear about other children who are cutting themselves and the struggles their families are having as they go through really tough and painful experiences. And it breaks my heart. Just this week on campus... I was there on Monday. I had a student come and tell me about a pregnancy. She had lost this child through a miscarriage and this had devastated her. But at the same time, a friend of hers who was speaking to her had become pregnant as well and she didn't want the child and so she chose to have an abortion. What do you say to that? On the one hand, we have a Christian couple that want a child and God takes it away. And on the other, I have a non-Christian who's given a child and they go out and murder it. I think you'll be very hard-pressed not to ask the question, why God? Why are you doing this? What is the point? of it all. Now if we find that question hard, imagine how much harder it was for the teacher of Ecclesiastes. He did not live in a post-cross world, yet he knew he had to turn to God and wait on him for the answer. And the answer we have been given is very broad, but there is an answer. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. And this is 1 Corinthians 1 if you've got the time, but I'm just going to read it. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 25. For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, And foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Our world will never be satisfied with that answer, but it is the answer. Why? Why, God, do you allow these things? The answer, all for the glory of Jesus. That won't answer specific issues. It won't answer the individual issues that we are all going through, which do affect us all. We have all had pain and suffering in our life. Many of us will suffer much more. Many of us will go through great joys and have great successes, great, really excited for you. And when we're going through, here's the question we never ask, why God? Yet, whether you are going through pain and suffering, or whether you are having great joys and blessings, whichever the case, we need to remember that our God has not lost control of the situation that all things we experience are for the glory of Christ. We need to remember our God doesn't abandon us in our pain and our suffering. Instead, he points us to his son and he says, I know, I know what it is like to suffer innocently. I know what it is like to suffer unjustly but I have done it so that you might have life. Trust me. Trust me. He wants us to look at the cross and wait on him to reveal the answers. He wants us not to rely on our own understanding and wisdom. It will never be sufficient and it will usually cause more harm than good. Instead, we are to trust in the wisdom and the power of the cross. And we need to be a little bit humble and a little bit patient and wait on him to reveal the specifics. Ring, a ring, a rosie, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Is death the end? No. Is it all futile? No. Do we have all the answers? No. Does our God know what we are going through? Yes. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to be humble and patient. It teaches us to wait on God for him to reveal the specifics that will not always be easier and i would be lying if i said it would but he assures us it will be worth it and it will be worth it all for the glory of jesus let's pray our father in heaven we do thank you for the rich blessings you give us in christ we do know father that our world is full of pain and suffering And that as we look for an answer, we look for meaning in the world, that it will not be found there. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you for all those who have taught it and all those things that we have come to understand about you and about your relationship to the world. But we ask as we come to the end of this series, Father, that you will teach us to be humble and patient, that you will teach us to wait on you to actually trust in you and trust in what you have done in your son. We know, Father, the answers to the world's issues and the world's problems are not found in governments. They're not found in money. They're not found in pleasure. They're not found in anything that is found under the sun, but they are found in Christ alone. And we pray, Father, that you will give us wisdom to look to him and to trust him all the days of our lives, looking forward to that great redemption when we will be free of pain and suffering and live with you forever and ever in his kingdom.